Pasadena Mennonite sent us to another church for a period of time, but I'm Susan Cameron, and I'm glad to be back with you today, and I'll ask you to join me in prayer. Our God, thank you for the words of wisdom that you sent Jesus to give to us, the words of wisdom and liberation, and may I be your vessel to proclaim it, as well as those who will be talking back after these words. And may you bless us to hear the wisdom you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. This sermon is going to be a confessional one. Confession, in the sense Adam used in his sermon last week, because this passage and its parallel in Matthew has greatly impacted my own growth and thinking about what God is doing and trying to say to us through the Bible. It has been misused and abused in so many ways that I've seen and had to process for more than 50 years. First time I can recall this passage being applied in real life was when I was about middle school age. As I recall, it was before I joined the church, so I must have been 12 or 13. A divorced woman was a member of the Mennonite Brethren Church we were attending at the time. She had been single for quite a long period of time, raising two daughters alone. Her daughter Alice was my age. They lived in or near poverty, as I recall. She met someone and decided to remarry. She was not of Mennonite ancestry, but somehow had joined the church. Perhaps it was through the home missions work my parents had helped lead while I was growing up, until the mother church closed that work, and my family, hurt by this decision, joined the church in a neighboring town. One Sunday morning, it was announced in church that this woman had remarried, and the church council was putting it to a vote for her to be removed from membership. She was not there, and I don't know what efforts were made prior to this vote of excommunication. It was the only one I ever witnessed in my life. They put it to a vote, and no one spoke in this woman's defense. And she was removed from church membership. I guess over 50 years ago, this was the way this passage was interpreted by many in our Mennonite tradition. I now believe that that was an unjust application of these verses, but it took me a long time to reach that understanding. Fast forward about 10 or 15 years, and I'm a law student, one of the first generation of Mennonites to study law. Since being part of the legal system, even as an advocate, had historically been something frowned upon under the teaching of non-resistance. As a law student, the one place where I thought I would draw the line was divorce. I had some strange idea that I could practice law and remain pure, 
if I didn't do divorces. But this was the late 70s, early 80s. Women with law degrees were not being offered jobs as legal secretaries like Sandra Day O'Connor had, but I made sure nobody in the law offices where I worked during and after law school knew I could type. It was still hard for a woman to find a job with a law firm, and nearly all those who did practiced family law. As a student, I worked for a lawyer who made family law half his practice. And so I had to do research on family law issues and eventually would become certified as a law student to sign legal documents and make court appearances under his supervision. I was starting to get my hands dirty and needed to wrestle with this question or rationalize what I was doing. I settled in my mind that I was not separating couples God had joined together, but was seeking justice for those whose marriages had already failed. But all this time, this passage was in the back of my mind. I worked for Divorce Helpline in the 1990s. One of my subspecialties became the intersection of religion and family law. I learned about Jewish, Muslim, Baha'i, and Scientology laws, rules, and customs around marriage and divorce. I helped a number of Christian clergy couples settle their divorces and was surprised to learn that the divorces themselves seem not to affect these Christian ministers' careers and not to be investigated by their governing bodies. However, if a minister's wife should report to the religious authorities the abuse or adultery that had, in some cases, led to the divorce, that might jeopardize his career, and she might end up paying him spousal support because, as a result of the divorce, he would become financially disadvantaged. So they kept silent and to my great surprise, none of the religious authorities in the cases I dealt with ever asked. The same was true later of my own sister's divorce when she and her husband were both ministers. But studying how family systems were conceptualized in the laws, customs, and theologies of different religions finally helped me begin to understand this passage and what I believe Jesus was really saying. My family law career and my theological education and seminary overlapped for a few years, and whenever a course assignment provided the opportunity, I wrote research papers on topics related to these questions on the intersection of church, family, and state. Today's passage provides me the opportunity to share with the church body as a whole what I learned. So let's start with the exegesis of the passage. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This isn't about Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. That's one form of misuse and abuse of this scripture. (laughs) I've come to understand through this long process of experience and study also. And this misuse, and it stems from exactly the same misunderstanding. No, although we, with our modern Western eyes shaped by 2,000 years of church history, may see Jesus' words as words of bondage, they are actually words of liberation. There in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. To understand this part of the saying, which led to my friend's mother being excommunicated from my childhood church, we need to understand that what adultery meant in the first century and how it came to be defined in the Christian community as a result of this very teaching of Jesus are two different things. Christians today have no idea how shocking Jesus' words in this and three or four other similar passages sounded in the first century which is the whole point, so stay with me. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Adultery can be an offense against a woman unheard of. You see, double standards in the area of sexual mores is not a modern problem. It is a vestige of patriarchy that goes back to all of our Western ancestral cultures. And we can't even begin to understand this passage without understanding that, because that was Jesus' main point. In case you aren't convinced, let's go back to the Torah. Exodus 20, 14 says, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Repeated in Deuteronomy 5.10. So let's look at how the Torah itself unpacks it. Leviticus 20 verse 5 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. The offense is not against the wife of the adulterer. We should not automatically read back into the text of the Hebrew scriptures a gender-inclusive understanding. This law is not gender-inclusive, although most of us have been taught that it is. It is describing an offense against a woman's husband. It violates the man's rights over his wife's body because under the Torah law, the only right a woman has over her husband's body is that of the opportunity to bear children by him. Numbers 5 also discusses adultery as an offense against the woman's husband, giving him the right to demand that his wife be given an abortive patient by a priest if he becomes jealous or suspicious of her. 
A man could have many wives and concubines, visit prostitutes, and have affairs, so long as it was not with another man's wife. But a wife could have only one husband and could not have affairs outside of marriage. A man's rights over his wife's body remains binding, even if he is not fulfilling his obligations to her. It is for this reason that the law in Deuteronomy 24 admonishes a man who does not want to be a husband to his wife to give her a piece of paper certifying she is free to marry someone else. But he can't be forced to do this. If he doesn't, the woman with no husband but no right to remarry is considered a guna, a chained woman. And even today, rabbis struggle with what to do about the aguna problem. When a man, after legal divorce, won't give his wife this piece of paper, the same situation applies to the wife of a man who is missing but not proven to be dead, such as a man missing in action in war. To prevent this, pious Orthodox Jewish soldiers to this day give their wives a conditional bill of divorce before they are deployed. Rabbis at the time of this thing argued among themselves about how serious the cause needed to be for a husband's decision to divorce to be morally justified. But no one questioned that men had rights and power over their wives that allowed them to dispose of them, but women had no such rights or power. There was no disagreement that the worst thing a woman could do was commit adultery against her husband, but that there was no such thing as a man committing adultery against his wife. None of these laws apply the same way if the genders are reversed. Similarly, under Greco-Roman laws, adultery was an offense against the woman's husband. Although Greco-Roman laws did allow women to divorce their husbands under some circumstances. The church, following the advice of Jesus, eventually required the express consent of both spouses to create a valid marriage and redefined adultery as an offense against either spouse. But this developed centuries after Jesus. We can't read our modern understanding of adultery and innovation of the church based on this and the two or three similar passages back into the gospel. No. Jesus' words here were shocking because he treated marital fidelity as reciprocal on the part of both spouses equally. This is the gospel. This is the good news of liberation for women that the disciples in the Matthew passage think is so hard. They seem to think it is so hard, it would be better for a man not to marry at all. And Jesus says, that's okay. He is against marriage that meant one-sided bondage. If you can't handle being equally committed, better not to participate in that kind of bondage at all. Jesus was announcing that marriage was never intended to be a relationship where a man owned a woman. 
he quotes Genesis where it says a man should leave his father and mother and join his wife. This was to emphasize that all the laws about divorce and adultery stemmed from customs that were exactly the opposite of this. Women left their families and joined their husbands' families. Catherine Bushnell was probably the first theologian to note this in her writings about 100 years ago. She noted that if families followed God's intent, as stated in Genesis, physically stronger men would join their wife's family upon marriage, where she would continue to have natural allies to protect her and see that her husband did not abuse her. Jesus was saying it is wrong for a man to divorce as he wished when his powerless wife had no such privilege. The male disciples thought owing the same fidelity to a woman as a woman owed to a man would be so hard they could not imagine it. They said it would be easier to remain single, an almost unheard of idea at the time when being married and having a good family was an important aspect of a man's honor. And I'll give credit here, right here to Bert Newton's podcast, where he talks about exactly how honor and shame worked in this society. Spoiler alert, honor derived from a show of generosity toward those beneath a man whom that same honored man was likely oppressing in a variety of ways. Jesus pointed to eunuchs, who we now understand to mean men who were gay or asexual, and said, okay, if it's too hard for you to treat a woman as an equal in marriage, then for the sake of the kingdom of God, don't get married and choose to live like eunuchs do. That's much better. I don't know what led to the divorce between Alice's mother and her first husband. I do assume that since a divorced woman was allowed to be member of a Mennonite Brethren church in the 1960s, she was likely examined on these facts and either was deemed to be the innocent party or she had confessed her sin and been forgiven, but still she was not free and was condemned and excommunicated when, years later, living on the edge of poverty, she found another man willing to partner with her. The church took Jesus' teaching that God intended marriage to be a relationship of mutuality and reciprocity and twisted it until the idea of a lifelong relationship became again a rule of bondage. This view evolved only after Christians forgot that what was hard about Jesus' teaching to men on marriage that was that wives were not property that could be discarded. Jesus said in the beginning, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. But both the Jewish and Greco-Roman laws said the opposite. A woman left her husband, left her family, and joined her husband's family, becoming his property, not one flesh. This is one of those, you have heard it said, but 
I say unto you, moments. In Matthew, some of these are explicit, but there are many of them in the gospel where it's only implied. The Torah law gave men a way out of a bad marriage, but kept women in bondage. This was wrong. Jesus declares women freed from bondage and announces that marriage is a relationship of mutuality, reciprocity, and equality. That is the disciples' takeaway from this passage, and it must be ours too. May we see this passage as Jesus' teaching that single life is good and marriages are meant to be faithful relationships of mutuality, reciprocity, and equality. Jesus proclaims liberation to powerless women and blessing to powerless children. May we teach this to our young people, and may the church be a family of believers that values both marriage and singleness, young and old, as Jesus did.